thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Cape Talk. You're listening to Cape Talk. I'm Kino Cummings and welcome to today. Uh, Dr. Chris Smith, as we call him, Dr. 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 All accurate. Uh, Chris Smith joining you to talk about those things that you've noticed around you. You want to know why it happens? Great having you back, Chris. Hey, morning. Hello, hello. So we'll start with a call. We've got Zuki in the CBD. Good morning, Zuki. Good having you on. Good morning, Kina. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Zuki. Um, So yesterday, I put three bottles of bottled water in the freezer um, at around 4 p.m. When I woke up this morning to take them out at about 5 a.m., two of the bottles hadn't frozen, and the one had, even though they were right next to each other. And I was just wondering how that's even possible. Morning, Zuki. Oh, wow. Yeah, this, this is a confusing, but it's an accurate observation, and well done for doing the experiment and then noticing the disparity. The reason is because of the unusual chemistry of water. Although water does indeed freeze at zero, it's possible under the right conditions to have water that's still a liquid at minus 40 degrees C. And this is the phenomenon known as freezing rain, when people will be driving down a road and then water comes down out of the sky, lands as rain on their windscreen and instantly freezes. And this is because in order to start the process of freezing, water needs a helping hand in the form of a seed crystal or what we call a nucleation site. And what I suspect has happened with your bottles is that the water did get sufficiently cold to freeze in all of them, but perhaps in just the first one that began to freeze, there was a seed crystal or a small imperfection on the surface which created the right energetic environment for the water molecules to begin to line themselves up in the right way because when ice forms as a crystal, the water molecules arrange themselves in three-dimensional space in a very specific way. And if you've got an ice crystal there already or an imperfection or a rough spot, then this makes it much easier for subsequent molecules to join and grow a big ice crystal and fill the bottle. And if you'd shaken up the bottles that were the other two frozen ones or disturbed them, it's perfectly possible they too might have then begun to freeze because it would have exposed more cold surface and imperfections elsewhere in the bottle that could have then got the process started. So I suspect it's because they were left really still with a nice smooth surface in contact with the water and the water temperature was really low, sufficiently low to freeze, but there was no seed crystal there to get it started in the first place and that's why those two had remained in the liquid form. Now you I see, just quickly say yeah. that um, I, I, I thought that's what might be happening. So I did actually try and lightly tap the one unfrozen bottle, but it still didn't freeze. Oh, well, well done again for trying the experiment. You know, there's an even more cunning thing you could try and do, and maybe this is your experiment for tomorrow, which is that if you put a bottle of, say, fizzy drink like lemonade in identical conditions, it's possible to get the lemonade to stay liquid, but the minute you open the top and... and 
as though we were going to pour the drink out, it will instantly freeze. And we were doing this as a stage demonstration and, and wowing people out with this a few years ago. And the reason for that is, again, when the bubbles of carbon dioxide try to come out of the drink when you take the pressure off by opening the lid, you create more nucleation points. But also, when you remove gas from the liquid, you're removing a dissolved thing. And when you dissolve something in another thing, you lower the freezing point of the solvent. So if you lose gas from the water, the freezing point of the water comes up. And so we, we were speculating that both events or both effects probably kick in. And that's why the lemonade will freeze from the top down to the bottom. It's really dramatic, actually. There we go. So I can just imagine your next conversation with your mate, Zuki. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to sound really smart. <laughs> <laughs> this is the other thing, right? You listen to Dr. Chris Smith, and it's wonderful when people are talking about their jobs and, you know, talking about the family and all sorts of other boring stuff that we normally talk about around dinner tables. You can always go, you know what? This is what's happened, and it didn't freeze, and this is why. Anyway, let's move on. You are joined by Dr. Chris Smith. He is the naked scientist. He can answer all your questions that you have about everyday life experiences that you have, and you're looking for an explanation as to how something had come about or had not. Um, so 21 and WhatsApp and 72 We'll go to WhatsApp this time, and uh, here's a WhatsApp question for you. If a cup of rooibos tea makes you cooler, um, what about in the winter if you drink a hot cup of rooibos tea? Does that make you colder then and not warmer? Uh, perhaps the naked scientist can answer us. Okay, people always say drink tea to make you cooler, to cool you down when it's hot. And uh, our listener there was saying rooibos tea, obviously. She says cools you down. I want to know if that's a fact. Uh, and if it is, then what happens in winter? Do you know, I've got here my cup of rooibos tea this morning, actually, here. <laughs> and I'm not lying. Good man, good man. It's 11 o'clock tea. It's that I've got the box sitting on top of the cupboard. Uh, I, I buy a job lot. Every time I'm in South Africa, I buy a big job lot of 11 o'clock tea. <laughs> so, and I've nearly run out, so it's time to come back and get some more. Uh, it's my favourite tea. My daughter loves it too, so the pair of us are now going down this box really fast. The question is alluding to the fact that when you, when you drink anything, it helps you to cool down because one of the major mechanisms by which we cool our body is sweating. And in order to sweat, you make sweat from blood plasma which is the watery part of blood and so if you're becoming dehydrated then there's less free water available to turn into sweat so it becomes harder for the body to control temperature the other way in which we lose and control temperature lose heat and control temperature in the body is that we divert blood close to the skin surface and by running hot blood close to the skin surface it can radiate heat out into the environment now the amount of energy in a hot cup of tea coffee rooibos anything is trivial in comparison to the amount of energy that is in your body that you're trying to lose so a human body runs at the rate of about two watts per kilogram so your average 50 60 kilo person is producing heat at the rate of 100 watts that means 100 joules a second now the amount of energy in a hot cup of tea is inconsequential in the long term compared to that. But what the water does is enable you to maintain a circulation, have extra volume of water there to enable sweating, and both of those two effects are much more powerful as heat loss mechanisms than any small amount of heat added to the body in the short term, which is what comes in with the hot water. Well, there we go. 
Uh, thank you very much for posting that particular question, and we'll take some more on those numbers, 21 446 and WhatsApp at 072-567-1567. Another question here came in via WhatsApp. What is phlegm, and does it serve any purpose other than, you know, making us having annoying coughs? And is it harmful to swallow your own phlegm instead of spitting it out? Thankfully not, because as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit stuffed up. Uh, So I'm a victim of phlegm today, and uh, it's absolutely harmless. In fact, it's very, very helpful in its healthy state. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, phlegm is just a, a sort of slang word for mucus. Mucus is produced over epithelial surfaces... These are linings of things in the body and in the lungs you have an epithelial surface which is covered in tiny hairs. These are called stereocilia and next to these these ciliated epithelial cells are mucus producing cells called goblet cells and throughout the lung these goblet cells squirt this sticky mucus onto the surface of the epithelial cells and the hairs waft and move the mucus along and it's called a mucociliary escalator. And its role is that as you breathe in, the nature of the airways is that there's turbulent flow of air through the airways. That means the air is moving chaotically and bashing into the wall of the airways. When it does that, it flings any particles of dirt, viruses, bacteria, other particles into the wall of the airway and it meets this mucus. The mucus is sticky so it grabs onto the muck and the air that then passes on further down the tube is cleaner than it was before. And in this way, you have stopped viruses and other particles getting right down into the bottoms of your lungs, where they could do more harm, although very tiny particles still nonetheless make it because they're not trapped in this way. And the mucus, because it's being wafted along by these ciliated cells, is slowly moved out of the airways up to the back of your throat, where you (coughs) cough, clear your throat and swallow, What you're doing is chucking it down into your stomach. And in your stomach, waiting for it is a very strong pool of hydrochloric acid, which is at very low pH. And this very powerfully and usually deactivates the vast majority of nasties which might be in there. Now, the exceptions to this, some people have the condition cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is caused by the change of a gene, the cystic fibrosis gene, which is also called the transmembrane conductance regulator. And... This is a chloride channel. In other words, it's a pore on the surfaces of your airway cells which allows the movement of chlorine in and out of cells. And if you don't get the flux of chlorine right, then the mucus becomes very thick and sticky. And instead of being easily removed from the lungs and then swallowed, it stays where it is. And people with cystic fibrosis get clogged up lungs and they have to have physiotherapy each day and sometimes breathe in salty water in order to make the mucus more runny and this means it's much harder for them to keep the muck out of their lungs and they can get repeated lung infections so phlegm isn't always a good idea but it's very useful for keeping us healthy in the short term and when you get an infection you produce more of it because the body's natural response to inflammation and infection is to increase the production of mucus because this traps and sequesters nasties bacteria viruses and so on and then they can be removed en masse clearing away the debris as uh, alongside any dead immune cells like neutrophils white blood cells that have come in to help clear up the mess as well and that's why snot goes green when you have a, a bad infection because dead body immune cells are in there where they've been in there helping to clear up and, and fight the invaders
There we go. Hopefully you're enjoying your breakfast this morning. Let's go to Roy in Simonstown. Hi, Roy. Hello, Kino. Hello, Chris. I read an article yesterday that um, said that the body temperature, the average human body temperature is decreasing um, by a a minuscule amount, perhaps 0.02%, because globally we are uh, becoming less infected. I'm afraid you're excluded from this at the moment. (laughs) But because of, of, of of infection raising body temperature, less infections means that on a global scale, uh, we're we're getting cooler as human beings. Do you agree? Comment? Well, first of all, what's the role of body temperature? Why are humans warm-blooded? We we are homeotherms. In other words, we keep our body temperature locked to one temperature, and it's not dictated by the environment. It's dictated by a set point in our body, in the brain's hypothalamus. We have a thermostat that keeps our body at the right temperature. We do that because our bodies have evolved to operate at an optimum temperature of around about 37 degrees. That optimum is the right temperature to enable the enzymes which power our metabolism and the other cells and functions in the cells, tissues, etc. in the body to function optimally. Now, when you get an infection, body temperature changes. And one reason for this is that many of the viruses that cause respiratory infections actually replicate or grow much better at lower temperatures. Research has showed in recent years that, in fact, if you grow these viruses at higher temperatures, they are less efficient. And the reason is that when you are infected, the cells detect the infection and they produce an inflammatory response. And the inflammatory response then increases various signals that tell the body, turn up the temperature. So this is the body's way of fighting back against the infection. At the same time, the... uh, that there is evidence that viruses just don't function themselves very well at these escalated temperatures. They have evolved to grow at lower temperatures and therefore when you increase the temperature, the particles and the various micro-machines that the, the viruses use in order to replicate themselves just don't work very well at those higher temperatures. In terms of, of changes, the, you're referring to a piece of research that was published in eLife. It's just come out and I'm actually due to talk to the lady who did the study um, quite soon. And she was looking at the question of how has body temperature changed over time and and done that in America. Now, it's very easy to think that humans are stuck in time and we've stopped evolving. This couldn't be further from the truth. Evolution is you pitting your genes against your environment. We're all run by genes. We have a genetic program in every single one of us, which we get from our parents, and that genetic program is dictating the biochemistry of our bodies. And we are challenged by the environment we live in. And if the environment changes, which it always is, therefore our bodies are going to do better under certain circumstances with certain repertoires of genes than others. So it's actually quite logical that we should, as the environment changes, continue to change and adapt to the environment in which we we live. And we're going to select for people who are most successful in the environment in which they live. That's always been happening. It's going to continue to happen into the future. Roy, thank you very much for asking that question, sir, and have a good weekend, eh? Thank you. Monday to Friday, Friday. 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. Let's go to Jacqueline in Somerset West. And for those who've just tuned in, by the way, you are listening to Today and Dr. Chris Smith with you, the naked scientist asking, answering all your questions, at least, about everyday life. So, Jacqueline, good morning. Good morning, Kino. Good morning, Dr. Chris. I was fascinated with this young student who on his third day of his VAC job at NASA discovered a planet 
can you possibly just say what he was looking at, what he was looking for, and how he possibly actually made the discovery? Yeah, what an amazing bit of work experience. Eh? I bet he didn't plan that when he got the gig. But uh, <laughs> this has actually become more de rigueur these days, not for work experience students to discover planets, but for scientists to discover planets. Since Didier Kello, who got the Nobel Prize in the last 12 months for doing precisely this, monumentally discovered the first exoplanet, we've now since gone on to document more like 5,000 of them. So it's quite well understood how you can find them, but you've got to have an eye for it and you've got to go and be painstaking in your observations and it does take a long time to get enough information. What scientists are doing to spot these planets is to look at a distant star and to be clear, this is a star which is nowhere near us because it's a system like the one we live in with our sun and our planets around it, but remote from us, but also within the Milky Way galaxy. You look at that star and if there are planets there... In some cases, if the planet goes between us and that distant star, if you're looking with enough sensitivity, so you have good enough equipment, you can see the light dip transiently from that star as the planet goes in front of it. The observations, though, have to be really careful because the planet, compared to the size of the star, is excruciatingly tiny, so the change in brightness is excruciatingly tiny. So that's one way of doing it. The other is that as the planet goes round... When the planet goes in front of the star, so it's between us and the star, its gravity pulls the star towards us a tiny bit. And this has the effect of squashing the light that the star is giving out and sending to us a tiny bit. So it makes the light look bluer than it should do. And when the planet goes around the back of the star, it has the opposite effect. And it causes the light, because the star is being pulled away from us very slightly, to stretch out. So it makes the light look redder than it should do. And because you see this happening with a regular period, because planets go round in an orbit with a regular period, you see it going blue-red, blue-red, blue-red. And this enables you to make predictions about how big this planet is, what its orbit is, and therefore a number of things about that system. And so the individual who spotted one of these with NASA was looking at some data that had been collected and noticed that there were these changes and then realised that this could be explained by uh, an exoplanet and when his uh, supervisors were asked to corroborate this they realised that he was absolutely right and he had spotted an exoplanet that we hadn't done previously. Oh wow. Well Jacqueline, thank you for asking that particular question. Let's go to Stephen Fishuk. Hi Steve. Yes, good morning. Um, I'm diverticular, get irritable bowel and years ago the surgeon said not to drink carbonated water obviously when it was sore. Is that still the advice? Um, when you say you've got di okay. di diverticular, do you, do you mean as in a diverticulitis down in the lower bowel, or do you mean you have some kind of diverticulum in the upper part of your GI tract? No, it's in the lower, diverticulitis y yeah. in the lower tract. So for people just to explain what this is, the large bowel is the colon, and the last bit of the large bowel is the sigmoid colon, which goes down towards the rectum. And this is the most common site, but you can get divertic a diverticulum anywhere along that pathway. A diverticulum is a small outpouching of the lining of the gut through the muscle of the wall of the gut. So basically high pressures inside the gut are thought to push a small pouch of the gut lining out between the fibres of the, the muscle coat of the bowel, producing this small pouch, which therefore lies outside the wall part of the bowel and this can get pinched off 
and can become sore and can sometimes bleed or cause infection problems. And one of the risk factors is high bowel pressure, which can be caused by not eating enough fibre in some cases. And other things can be a risk factor for this too. Some people just get it. And if you maintain a healthy diet and you know what tends to keep you okay, you can keep it under control. And most people manage quite well with this. Now, in terms of uh, eating and drinking different things, I'm not aware of any contraindication against carbonated drinks. Simple reason being, when you drink a fizzy drink, it's going into your mouth and then down your esophagus and into your stomach. Now, fizzy drinks will largely be completely dispensed with in terms of their fizziness before they even get all the way down into your stomach or certainly beyond your stomach because the fizziness meets the roughness of the esophageal wall and it also meets the environment of the stomach and all the stuff that's already in there and these produce lots of nucleation points where the gas will just evolve, come off and that's why when you drink a fizzy drink you often want to burp afterwards because the gas comes out, forms lots of bubbles of gas in your gut, in your stomach and then you go burp, get rid of it. None of that is going to make its way down into your large bowel and therefore I think it's unlikely that that's going to be a big risk factor for your diverticular disease. Well there we go, thank you Steve for asking that question. Jardine in Claremont, good morning. Good morning and um, hope you guys are having a wonderful time. Indeed, my, I've got to say my family is completely crazy about it, a naked scientist with all of his knowledge jumping from space to science to guttural movement. <laughs> it's well respected. Oh thank you. Um, but my daughter, got, we got a, we've got a question in terms of human biology and providing energy, right, what would be the most efficient diet? Is it vegetarian, vegan or omnivorous for a human being? Well, I think you have to ask, um, what, what have we evolved to do? Because at the end of the day, we've had probably about six million years of evolution bef- between the time that uh, we last shared an ancestor with a chimp. And we, so we've been evolving over the last X number of million years. And we've been evolving to take advantage of what the environment offered us and to become good at fitting into that environment. That's natural selection. And we were talking about that just now with respect to body temperatures and so on. So therefore, we would have historically ava- have availed ourselves of whatever was available to us and would provide us with uh, healthy nutrition. And the answer is that we we have become omnivorous and that's what made us successful because we could basically take advantage of whatever was on offer. And when there were foods, when there were fruits and vegetables, we eat those. When there's meat, we eat that. Now, meat's a premium thing and it's hard to come by and animals value meat very highly because it's very high in vitamins, especially vitamin C, for example, and iron and other minerals and, and micronutrients, lots of protein, lots of energy locked up in there. So meat would be a premium thing. So we would have had that to top us up. Fruits and vegetables you know, were, were largely on tap but seasonal and then anything else we could grab when we got the chance. So actually I think the best diet for a person is, is going to be a diet which is broad, contains all the different food groups and a little bit of everything. But I'm going to refine that and say actually it's also horses for courses here because what we're now learning about is that certain people are much better at eating and digesting certain diets than others. And this is down to your microbiome. And if, if you have, a, everyone has a unique set of microbes that live in them and on them. And the ones that live in your gut see your dinner before you do. And they make different manipulations or chemical changes and they're adapted to eat certain foodstuffs much better than, uh, than uh, other people's microbiome, for example. So some foods will suit some people much better than others. And we're now beginning to develop tests that will enable us to see 
how this works. So, for example, one person might drink a, a can or a, a glass of orange juice and their blood glucose may hardly change. Another person may do the same thing and their, their blood glucose will go shooting up and they'll look like they're pre-diabetic. And it's all because of how we handle those calories and our microbes uh, interact with us to handle those calories. So our metabolisms are all different. And what we're probably going to start doing more of in the future is tailoring our diet to match our biochemistry. And we're, we're beginning to develop tests that will enable us to do that. So uh, at the moment, I would say eat a broad diet and do your five a day, fruit and vegetables as well as the meat. But don't exclude any food groups because we do need a little bit of everything. But in the future, be prepared that a test is coming probably that's going to help you to tailor your diet specifically to your biochemistry and physiology. There we go. The man who everybody loves, Dr. 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 Oh. Chris Smith. We'll, we'll see you next week, sir. Have a good weekend. Thanks very much, Kino. Bye-bye, everyone. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.